Hello and welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood, the usual twofer today. We'll hear from Stafford Professor David Palumbo Liu about the politics of that institution, as well as one of its most notorious alumni, Peter Thiel. And the Sri Lankan writer Indrajit Samarajiva will delve into the economic and political crises plaguing that country. Given that many of our national political writers and analysts are based in the Northeast, and that many of them went to Ivy League colleges and the like, the universities of that part of the country get most of the attention as shapers of our ruling class and its scribes, as well as our national discourse. I plead guilty to such provincialism myself. Stanford, despite its wealth and prominence, doesn't get the attention it deserves. To remedy that oversight, we're joined by David Palumbo Liu, a professor of comparative literature and English there. He'll address two topics, the overall political culture of the university, which is deeply embedded in the worlds of Silicon Valley and its venture capitalists, and the politics and influence of Peter Thiel, who got his undergraduate and law degrees from the university. Thiel, whose net worth as I'm recording these words is $7.7 billion, according to Bloomberg, was a co-founder of PayPal. He was also Facebook's first outside investor and funded, along with the CIA's venture capital arm, Palantir Technologies. He's also a right-wing authoritarian, a friend of Donald Trump, and holds some curious views on race and gender. In a 2009 essay for a Cato Institute magazine, Thiel observed, Since 1920, the vast increase in welfare beneficiaries and the extension of the franchise to women, two constituencies that are notoriously tough for libertarians, have rendered the notion of capitalist democracy into an oxymoron. Facing outrage, Thiel later qualified this, but he revealed where his heart, such as it is, lies. And now he's funding an array of protégés and fellow thinkers, including Blake Masters and J.D. Vance, who are running for Senate from Arizona and Ohio. With more, here's David Palumbo Lou. Before we uh, talk about uh, the evil Peter Thiel, uh, let's talk a bit about the general political atmosphere on the Stanford as an institution on the campus. First, among the students, I, mean, I was there for a brief visit about uh, a little over 10 years ago. I got a, just from a feeling of being around the place that uh, it was not a very politically engaged uh, student body. What's it like now? By and large, that's still the case. However, certain things that are happening nationally are registering amongst the student body in rather more, as they say, impact ways. Most importantly, after George Floyd, George Floyd's murder, and then uh, climate change, climate crisis. We find a lot more energy around those two issues. You know, we just got this $1.1 billion gift to start this uh, school for sustainability. The uh, appointed dean has said that he's not ruling out taking money from fossil fuel companies. <laughs> His line was, we don't want to turn down uh, money from anybody who really wants to help. And that really, you know, that begs the question. And I will say that there's been vociferous pushback on that, not from faculty necessarily, although some, and not from undergrads, but from graduate students in earth sciences, et cetera. And as I tell my undergrads, it's because they've made this very profound decision to go into the profession and to do something about this for the remainder of their lives. And they're not jaded and corrupted yet because they haven't become faculty members. So they're really at that really important turning point, as it were. And they are leading the charge. And hundreds of people, uh, including faculty, have signed saying we need to have a discussion about this because... It threatens to become just another green capitalist scheme, another for-profit, as it were, enterprise. And he's also said, you know, we are not in the game of advocacy. So when you put that down in such bold terms, then you know, what's the point? Where'd the money come from? The main donor is a guy named John Doerr. Oh, okay, yeah. <laughs> His basic understanding of this is that it's a managerial issue. And if we can just decide how best to rationalize the response, then each piece of the bureaucracy can function almost independently. And for most of us, that whole approach has been disastrous. And it's not worth the money that's being spent or the energy that's being drained into it. And this really broke in the spring. So I think a lot of things are going to happen in the fall one thing Stanford has done that, that is very commendable is this, uh, and I forget what the acronym stands for, IDEAL, 
but it's around diversity, but hiring really interesting people doing work in race and ethnicity. And I've seen a lot of the files and some of them are pretty damn radical. People that have been on the forefront of issues of like um, racial capitalism and things like that. My concern is that once they get here, they're going to find that what lured them in is not sustainable. And much like the state sustainability, the initial impetus is good, but it will peter out in the morass of the bureaucracy. And then, of course, the uh, the elections, the, the midterms are going to be, especially after Roe v. Wade. So I think a lot of students are going to be more politically engaged. And I don't see that letting up, especially with the climate crisis. I think that's really holding people's interests in a way that no other issue has. John Doerr, of course, is one of the more um, eminent pioneering uh, venture capitalists. Uh, I guess there's a whole new generation that succeeded him, but you know, I guess he's pretty revered in that world. Uh, and Stanford itself is very close to that world and Silicon Valley more broadly. How does that affect the atmosphere of the university? New York Magazine did a couple of rather scathing, in-depth articles. Uh, I forget what the title was exactly. Something like Make Money University. If you look at the web website of Yale's American Studies program, I think what it is, big thing about public humanities and a real press to get faculty to to show that we're relevant to the public. And so Stanford's doing a lot of that, but it's not doing a good job of defending people who are uh, who are putting out politically aggressive work. For example, there's a colleague of mine here in the Graduate School of Education who has been a pioneer in terms of reforming the math curriculum. And now it's she's being attacked for being a proponent of woke math and suggesting that math is racist. And Stanford is doing nothing to protect her. I mean, she's being doxxed. She's being the Stanford Review has published hit pieces and asked people to contribute information on her. She has had her home address published. So the desire to make Stanford relevant, not just as an entrepreneurial money-making entity, but as producing scholarship that goes to the broader public good is negated by the fact that when people coming up with a broader understanding of what the public good might be, publish things. And of course, I've, I've been attacked similarly. It really shows the point of, of divergence. We find that it's actually almost an educational opportunity. As a former Hoover fellow, you, you, you know that <laughs> long-term antagonism, contradictions, etc. Our current provost's father was a Hoover fellow, and she finds Hoover to be a very positive institution. With conversations with her, she also finds Peter Thiel to be a very interesting addition to the conversation. And so a group of us faculty asked the faculty senate to pass a resolution simply setting up a committee to look into the relationships between Stanford and the Hoover, finally. I mean, this is done periodically, but it hasn't been done in a long time. And we were most concerned by the fact that Hoover fellows like Scott Atlas, when talking about the public good, were disseminating misinformation and disinformation. And it was all sitting underneath the Stanford logo because the, Stan the Hoover website exists and then the banner is Stanford University. Is Hoover like pretty much a self-governing autonomous body? Absolutely. That's the way Herbert set it up. And I've had friends both in the School of Education and the School of Medicine who have put out information, whatever, and been asked by the university to take it down because it sits under the Stanford banner. And we pointed out, you could go to the landing page of the Hoover Institution and they would have various public interest articles. You could click on some of them and they would backlink directly to the Daily Caller. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. And we actually presented the Senate, not only that, but Oxford University did a really good study about bank links and how many reputable institutions are completely ruining their reputation or should have the reputation because they backlink completely irresponsibly to these kinds of publications. In any case, we presented our resolution. We said, we don't want to be on the committee. We want to be completely hands off. But we're researchers. We're scholars. We should understand better what this relationship is. Well. The current provost, who, as I said, had uttered, I mean, what provoked this conversation, she at one faculty said, and he said, well, you know, the Hoover is us and we are the Hoover, so there's really no difference. So oh, wow. many of us, many of us disagreed. And then the provost before her, fairly, I'm very supportive of the Hoover. And then the provost before him, Condoleezza Rice. So they were all in the room and they all attacked the resolution and Condoleezza Rice actually called it the revolution. Oh, and, <laughs> we can dream, can't we? <laughs> yeah, I know. We had live streamed it on YouTube to members of the Stanford community. 
And over 300 people were watching that. And we didn't necessarily believe the resolution would pass, but we want to educate people. And this is where I'm coming back to this. We want to sort of show people what goes on here, which is it's a very, very tightly run ship. Everything passes through the eye of the needle of the uh, office of the general counsel. Our president, who is, I think it's his fifth or sixth year, is very reticent. And his statements have been, even the well-intentioned ones have come off as being almost equivocal. After Roe v. Wade was overturned, the dean of the School of Medicine wrote a statement saying, we understand abortion is a controversial issue. If you compare it to the UC statement, which says it's a constitutional right that's been taken away. It's not a matter of a controversy. People can feel differently about it, but it's a constitutional right and a public health issue. They eschew any kind of actual engagement with issues and lop it off to the most innocuous kinds of formulations. In contrast, again, when students and faculty reject that kind of evasion and are more forthright, Stanford will not will not at all allow it in terms of we can't have it sitting under the Stanford logo. If we're attacked by the right, Stanford will not defend us either legally or publicly, except for to say, well, we can say what we want to say. But that's not really a robust defense. It's rather a one-size-fits-all retreat into a very misinformed notion of what academic freedom is. Academic freedom, not the freedom to say anything you want. It's not free speech. Academic freedom comes with certain kinds of ethical responsibilities. Okay, let's turn to the celebrity, Peter Thiel, who is getting a lot of attention now, it seems. He's always been a bit of a celebrity, but it seems to be amping up now. And he's had a, played a very large role in the Stanford environment. Tell us about your history with Thiel. You've been watching him for quite a while, right? I came to Stanford in 1990, and it was, I think, 1988, 87, around that time, that Peter Thiel founded the Stanford Review, you know, on the model of the Dartmouth Review. And he did this because he was an undergraduate at the time, and he was appalled by this notion of multiculturalism. And he made it his goal to fight it. That's pretty early, eighty late 80s. Yeah. 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 He's really yeah. cutting, cutting edge there. Yeah, absolutely. And what I'm, I hope bring out in the interview is that what we see today is simply the latest articulation of his, this is his brand. His brand is provocation. Conservatism doesn't even begin to cover what it is. He starts the Stanford Review as a stage debate between William Bennett and Jesse Jackson about multiculturalism and Peter Thiel's always been close to William Bennett, etc. When I got to Stanford in 90, the shockwaves were just beginning to subside, but the waters have never been completely placid. When I got here, a colleague of mine, uh, a new colleague of mine said, David, we're glad to have you, but I must say I have a moral and ethical objection to anybody whose job was created by an illegal act. Because the students have taken over the president's office and the tradition of Columbia in 68 or whatnot. So I came in from that perspective, a beneficiary of Peter Thiel's. So Petit's actions and what he started off. Let me say a couple of things, and then I'll get into a more uh, continuous, as it were, discussion of Petit. He portrays himself, or lets himself be portrayed as, as driven by libertarianism, and that's just ridiculous. <laughs> it's just, I mean, I think the Jacobin article, one paragraph saying that's just ridiculous, is to say that he's a libertarian is the same thing as calling neoliberals liberals. He's a neo-libertarian. I'm speaking with David Palumbo Liu, professor of comparative literature and English at Stanford. They're good libertarians. I mean, there's, they're, good, like, they're good anarchists. There are certain sentiments that many people might sign on to, but this just gives him the cover to sit under that label because he's not comfortable with any other ones. So the, the libertarian thing is, is bold. And the, he has these pseudo-intellectual pseudo pretensions. And he makes a big deal, and he lets his publicist make a big deal. In fact, he studied with René Girard here at, at Stanford, who was a colleague of mine in the same, in the same essentially, department. The, the part of René Girard's philosophy that Peter Thiel latches onto and, and promotes is this idea of mimetic theory. Well, what's that? So Girard basically feels, and the quote from him is, and I'll gloss it afterwards, man is the creature who does not know how, what to desire. And he turns to others in order to make up his mind. We desire what others desire because we imitate their desires. So essentially, what Gerard is saying is that we know what we want, or we've been trained not to 
value what we want, and instead we just imitate other people. And so that explains what we want to buy, who we want to live with, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And you can see how this this latches easily onto things like what Anne Ryan says, the world you desire can be one, it exists, it's possible, it's yours. So it's it's a, a way of distorting Jorah's rather complex philosophy into a simple message of self-entitlement. And also with that, uh, an argument about any anything that would constrain your ascendancy into full personhood, i.e. multiculturalism, this or that. So the path that, that I'm trying to chart here is that it's all leads into this really reactionary uh, cultural warrior uh, who, from the late 80s, has shaped himself around hiding or masking or diverting his white supremacy into these more innocuous na- labels that are distortions themselves, like being a Girardian or a, um, a libertarian. I mean, he got so bad in, in the late 80s, early 90s, and he was trashing Stanford so openly. Uh, and he was doing it in a very theatrical way. For example, besides not liking multiculturalism, he didn't like Title IX stuff, anything having to do with critiquing uh, sexual violence, sexual harassment. He didn't like gay rights. He didn't like what he thought were attacks on free speech. Uh, after he graduated, he became a student at the law school, which is where he met masters. And he wanted to test Stanford's commitment to free speech. And the way he did this was that he set up this event where this guy named Ken Ravois, who's one of his friends and also a Stanford law student, to stand outside the building of a residential fellow, in other words, people who were like, on the East Coast, they used to call them masters or whatever, people that would basically be in residential education and be the, the adults there, so to speak. And he had Ken Rapparce, and I think another person, stand outside the, the residence of this person who's openly gay and scream, die, die, you faggots. I hope you all die of AIDS. I hope you die quickly, the top of their lungs at noon. It was appalling. And this idea that, oh, I was just trying to see how people felt about free speech, that's bullshit. It was a a matter basically to gain attention for himself. And he continued to do this by attacking Stanford. It got so bad that he published one article in the um, Wall Street Journal. And the president of Stanford at the time, Gerhard Casper, and the provost at that time, Condoleezza Rice, wrote a rebuttal. They said, this commentary consists of the most egregious errors and misrepresentations. It's demagoguery, pure and simple. And that's exactly what it was. It was distortions, which he's happy to put forward as truth, and demagoguery. There's nothing subtle about it. It's a blunt instrument. And we see it today. In 2016, he agreed to address the Property and Freedom Society, which is an ultra-libertarian organization that also invited this person named Jared Taylor. Oh, my God. The American Renaissance guy, right? Exactly. Exactly. So there they are. And as you know, Taylor once wrote, Blacks and whites are different. When blacks are left entirely to their own devices, Western civilization, any kind of civilization disappears. And we see masters. I mean, it's all mimetic (laughs) in the most uh, disturbing way. He's also a friend of the alt-right nationalist leader, Devin Deanna, founder of Youth for Western Civilization, which espouses total Aryan victory. And we see these things in a continuum starting with the late 80s, when the Stanford College Republicans are just regurgitating this endlessly. There's very little variation. It's, this is the bed of it. In a 2016 profile of Teal, The Economist mentioned his defense of the die-die faggot episode. And then it added, and this is, what, I think, an important addition, Quote, there's a darker element in his thinking today. In an essay written in 2009 for the Cato Institute, he declared he no longer believed that freedom and democracy are compatible, putting some of the blame for growing statism on the rise of welfare dependency and the enfranchisement of women. Again, I think neither of those two are really his main concerns. I think his main concern is really, he's a white supremacist. I mean, he's, he's... If you had to boil down his philosophy, it seems he believes in a dictatorship of rich white men. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he 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 said earlier times at Stanford, he thought from his time in South Africa, apartheid works. It's economically sound. I mean, he and he's not departed from that. And Reed Hoffman characterized his style thus: Peter's argument obviously is that we need radical change. So throwing a grenade in the works is better than steady on. 
And what he, what Teal has found at this moment is the grenade. He's found he's had has a whole arsenal of grenades and people to throw at them and people like J.D. Vance, Masters, Trump, uh, the Republican Party. It's not that he's a an evil genius. He just has tons of money and he's he's just financing this with with glee. And the other thing that that really is so funny. Funny said is that yes, you know, if you're going to latch onto Rene Girard and you're going to critique people who just don't know what they want, so they're just they're just mimicking people that they think they should respect. I mean, Peter Thiel is—it's almost like Mao being against the cult of celebrity. Peter Thiel sets himself up as the object of mimicry, and he has this whole weird cabal of ex-editors of the Stanford Review. This is this—it sounds like a weird version of. Peter Pan and Never Neverland. He has meetings with them. These are folks in their 40s. <laughs> and they meet with Peter Thiel and they're all VCs. And they all talk about the girl who's at Stanford. It is bizarre. Well, if they're VCs, they don't even need his money. What is it that draws it to? Oh, you, you can always use more. <laughs> I guess that's true. Yeah. You can always use more. Come on. And so you have these people that are just putting on new labels to old things. Replacement theory. You know, white genocide attacks on race theory instead of multiculturalism, on woke math instead of, you know, standard. It's the same ballgame. But what's become so dangerous is that back in the 80s and early and 90s and even early 2000s, it was all contained. It was it was relatively contained. And now it's taken over the GOP. And this is what's frightening. I'm really deeply concerned about what's happening with the Republican Party, which has become the party of, it's an ethno-nationalist party. Yeah, and well, a figure like Blake Masters, who, who goes way back with Teal, right? To what, when they're in law school together, that's how they know each yeah, other? No, 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 Masters took a course from him. He sat at the master's feet, which again, this whole thing about be your own person, be, this, this libertarian radicalism, just don't listen to anybody, just follow your destiny. And they're all... I don't know which inappropriate image to you. They're all licking his feet, and he's licking somebody else's feet, and it's it's, it's this serial mi- mimicry of bad stuff. And they, they don't have an original bone in their body. I mean, really. Where do you think he's going with this? What would he like to see? What is what's his goal? More than anything, constant publicity, constant presence, constant. These people are so heavily addicted to power. It's it's an addiction. I mean. I did have a meeting. I've had many meetings with our provost. And and at one point she said, you know, the problem with you liberals is that you don't understand how power works. And you're not, Peter and these people understand. If you want to influence things, you, you need to develop these networks. And I thought, and it, it might be to my great feeling, but I'm repulsed by power. I mean, I, the people that follow that path to power are the most needy. I mean, the people like Condoleezza who, who mistake resolution for revolution. It struck me at that moment how frightened. I mean, it, it, we shouldn't necessarily take too much shelter in this, but they're so into the Washington, Cato, this whole configuration of what they consider the, the inner circle of the of the most powerful people in the world. But they're the most needy people I can imagine. Peter Thiel constantly he and this is this blows my mind. A member of my department proposed him a. a, a to be appointed lecturer <laughs> in the d- division of the literatures, cultures, and languages. Peter Thiel, I mean, what does he need to, you know, we are such small fry, but he will, He wants legitimation from every place. I guess he wants intellectual respectability because he's rich. Yeah, it's just another, it's not an arrow in his quiver. I mean, he doesn't, he doesn't prize it. I mean, they don't like intellectuals, but they just want to show, well, but if people care about it, we can do that too. It's such a, um, you know, I'm not a trained psychoanalyst, but God, it's so evident. We're just about out of time, but from your experience, any ideas on how to fight this stuff? I think that we, I mean, and this is where, you know, I think you and I began the conversation, is that we have to find a balance between not dismissing them as being just a bunch of rich guys, because they're they're more than that. They're dangerous rich guys. They're not politically savvy. They just have a lot of money and power, and they... They hedge their bets wildly, and they're loose cannons. So we should take them very seriously 
But we also should not take them too seriously. I mean, we shouldn't be af- afraid of them in an existential way, I think. I think we should understand that anybody who predicates so much of their identity on these kinds of shams is not all powerful and that we have to get our together to be, and this, and I, I hate to end plugging my book, but my book really is about restoring our sense of confidence in ourselves. And I say it in the plural because it has to be an interdependent collective uh, sense of opposition. And it's not discouraged so easily and awed by power, but rather gets back in touch with things that we can do ourselves. So that, that's, that would be my recommendation. They're fragile egos, and their 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 need for approval and admiration suggests that maybe in the back of their head there's a guilty conscience and a fear uh, that could be exploited. Yeah, exactly. That fear would be to be ignored. I mean, people say, "Well, just ignore them." I, we can't. This, we can't be that blithe about it. But on the other hand, we can't. We shouldn't be so awed by it. And so, I think you're exactly right. That's where to go. That was David Palumbo Lou, professor of comparative literature and English at Stanford. Teal, who is gay despite having organized a homophobic spectacle at Stanford, is starting a dating app for conservatives, straight only, called The Right Stuff. As them, a GLBTQ plus and beyond site, as it calls itself, points out, while the service purports to be for people who aren't offended by everything, pronouns are off limits. These people embrace the contradictions. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. Some of Money Talks by Cryptic Slaughter, a band that came out of Santa Monica in 1984. Next, Sri Lanka, a country of 22 million, it normally doesn't figure big in the news. These aren't normal times. Starting in the spring, reacting to a serious political and economic crisis, there was a mass uprising, culminating in a takeover of the president's house, which led to his resignation and that of the prime minister. Sadly, as we'll hear, they were replaced by other hereditary hacks. My next guest, Indrajit Samarajiva, is a Sri Lankan writer who had a piece on the topic in the New York Times the other day, of all places. It includes sentences like this, which you don't often read in that paper. Sri Lanka, like so many other countries struggling for solvency, remains a colony with the administration outsourced to the International Monetary Fund. Here's Indrajit Samarajiva. What you characterize in your article as a corrupt family dynasty uh, that's been ruling the country for years. Um, who are they? Where they come from? And uh, what was their rule like? To understand Sri Lanka, like uh, Sri Lankan did like a sort of diagram of this. And there's like a set of corrupt families. So we had like feudal oligarchic families for a long time. And they collaborated with the British and so on. And then when we got independence, they just got handed over this British parliamentary system, which also in itself entrenches class privilege. So a lot of stuff is blamed on the Rajapaksas, who are a corrupt family, but they're part of like a network of many corrupt families. So the problem is not necessarily that family. The problem is the whole oligarchy. And the guy who came in now, Ranil Wickremesinghe, his family has actually ruled the country for longer than the Rajapaksas and are as responsible. His uncle was the first president, and he's been prime minister like six times. So this is all sort of like one web, right? The Sri Lankan story, look, especially like white people love a bad brown guy with a mustache, right? You can just pin everything on them. And Mahindra Rajapaksa and his brother are bad brown guys with mustaches. But the problem is really sort of the ruling class. It's not that particular ruler. Well, what's the basis of their power? Um, Do they have economic power? They own a lot of things? Or is it some kind of hereditary royalty? How does it work? Who the Rajapaksas? The whole set of oligarchs you're talking about. 
Ranil's family, they have they control a lot of the press. So they started the first TV station, the first newspapers, and they just had land. And a lot of those guys, I don't know if that family in particular, but the British gave liquor licenses to certain families who are now so posh and they pretend like they're above everything. But, you know, they came, their money came from alcohol and so on. Even the Rajapaksas, these are like landed uh, gentry. So in the caste system, you have the Goigama caste and the Goigama is like the landowning caste. Under like a lot of socialist pressure, there was land reform where some of these estates were broken up. But the power structures generally, those ruling families stayed ruling. And now what does the economy look like? What, what's the basis of the economy? What, what kind of sectors? So, I mean, Sri Lanka still remains a colonial economy. So the basic colonial model is we export natural resources and labor, which are undervalued. And then we buy finished goods, which are overvalued. There is a brief moment under socialist governments where we try to develop our own energy and industrial sectors, but neoliberalism doesn't like that. Um, and so from the 1980s, we continued the colonial model. So like we export tea and um, garments. So like Victoria's Secret, Nike, a lot of that stuff is made here, even though we become a bit less price competitive on that. And then tourism, which is effectively an export, which to me is just like the same colonial model where like you literally have colonial buildings where we come and just rub white people's feet and like open coconuts for them, just like we would have done in the colonial days. And so that's where we generate like the dollars that we need to participate in the imperial petrodollar system. Beyond that, we import a lot. So we import like cars, we import oil, and that's where a lot of the breakdown has happened. We import medicine. We never really industrialized to produce things. So that's where the sort of big trade imbalance came in. Now, since the 1980s, Sri Lanka was one of the first countries to neoliberalize along with Chile. And we were supposed to be like a case study in like how this works. So we got generous Western aid for a while. During the war, they kind of forgot. Uh, And then when the war ended, we were sort of almost officially middle-income country. So the Western countries didn't give us debt anymore to prop up the essential trade imbalance, but they gave us over to their predatory banks like BlackRock and the whole like. And so we suddenly got essentially credit card loans to essentially paper over that fundamental colonial deficit of where you're importing more than you export. And in Sri Lanka, there's also significant trade misinvoicing and there's significant like transfer pricing so that the local elites are keeping money out and not really repatriating it. Um, I read some articles, there's one in the Daily FD with Sri Lankan thing, where they talk about like, if things were actually invoiced correctly and if the money was coming in correctly, we, would, we wouldn't have this imbalance, even with our imbalanced economy as it is. And is there a lot of capital flight? I mean, in general, yeah. So there's capital fight in many ways, right? So let's just take education. When Sri Lanka neoliberalized, the idea is that like we couldn't pay for public universities. We had a public university system, which my parents went through, but it's been like underfunded since then. So these students have been protesting since then, saying like, you know, we need to defend public education. And they just get tear gassed and water cannon for their troubles. And what's happened instead is that the rich will send their children abroad. So that money flows out, right? They said we didn't have money for public universities, but the money just goes out anyway. More money is being spent. Or we'll get like random like half-assed British universities, which I've never heard of, who come set up little degrees where they issue it in Sri Lanka and they don't have to like deal with us selling their shores. And that money also like goes out as well, or some of that money. So there's capital flight in that sense. And then there's also, they privatized uh, buses. The public transport. And we didn't really invest in rail and we, we have a decent rail and bus network, but they privatized chunks of it and they didn't invest more in it. And that was all on the guise of, again, like saving money. But then all that money went out to buy foreign cars, largely from Japan, where they give us reconditioned cars, which are just secondhand cars. Then it goes out to buying petrol because obviously private transport is highly inefficient. So all of the things that they said we didn't have money for under social public programs, we end up spending more and in a foreign currency for these privatized things. So in that sense, yeah, that's like just systemic capital flight. But if you're talking about people physically holding their money out, yeah, hell yeah, that's happening. So why did things hit a wall? What sparked the crisis? There's a global crisis going on within capitalism right now. And I think your listeners or whatever would be feeling it and experiencing. Like the system isn't working. When I talked about that unsustainability between imports and exports, like even America has that too, where you're actually not really producing enough to justify like the value of your dollar. And you're kind of able to prop that up because everybody else has to pay you imperial tribute to just like buy oil and crap. But this system is what's breaking down. 
Sri Lanka is not the only debt-fueled country run by idiots. Many countries are debt-fueled and run by idiots. Many countries have not invested in productive capacity, have not invested in their own people, have not invested in public services. I would say that America in many ways has obviously not the same. You have a lot of productive capacity, but you have similar structural problems and a higher debt burden than Sri Lanka. And America is able to money print its way out of it. If Sri Lanka had the power to just like make up money, then we wouldn't have this problem. So we have to face the consequences for those actions, for following neoliberal policies. But the originators of neoliberal policies have not yet to face those consequences because they're just printing their way out of it. But at some point, for everyone, even the greatest empires, the, the devil gets his due. What sparked the, uh, the m- most immediate crisis in Sri Lanka? So the immediate crisis, like the direct spark. So as I said, we're, we're propping up our imbalance with uh, these loans from private banks, from private Western banks mostly. So when Godabaya Rajabaksa came in, he did some policies which were stupid. Now, those policies, there had been stupid policies before, but for whatever reason, the Western creditors lowered Sri Lanka's credit rating. Now, we were, I think, spending up like 90% of like revenue, like servicing these bloody, just the interest payments, right? Just like rolling over one credit card with another. And again, it's not the Rajapaksas, Ranil Wickremesinghe, who's the unelected horrible person who's in right now, his government took out like 70, 80% of these loans just using one credit card to pay off another. So as your listeners might know, if you're using one credit card to pay off another, like at some point that runs out. So Sri Lanka's credit rating dropped. It made it difficult to borrow more to pay off the old loans. And then that spiraled with COVID-19. So with COVID-19, like the country shut down, actually did a good job managing the first wave. But then the country shut down, which shut down um, tourism, which is just a source. It's not a huge source of the economy, but it's definitely a short source of like foreign currency. It shut that down. It shut down a lot of the productive capacity. Um, within like garment factories and so on. So suddenly, like we weren't get able to take out new loans, nor were we able to do the meager productive activity that we're using to pay loans. And then it all collapsed. So then you just hit a default where you don't make an interest payment and then your credit rating is in the toilet. You can't, you know, get a buck from the bank. And then you're, then you're screwed. That's where Sri Lanka ended up. So there was an uprising and kicked out the previous set of rulers. What was that like? How did that happen? There was a revolutionary moment called the Aragalea struggle. And that was like very hopeful. There were young people from the IUSF. There were like young socialists, trade unionists, like people were really talking about power to the people beyond parliament. They were talking about system change. They were talking about like real change to this system. What happened is that really vested interests took advantage of that to just play musical chairs. So they got rid of the Rajapaksas. But then another ruling family of all of the ruling families I talked about just came in. And this guy is even worse. He's unelected, actually, Ranil Wickremesinghe. So he lost his parliamentary election. He was kicked out quite in disgrace. And this is a plot that would put House of Cards to same. But he somehow schemed his way into the prime ministership and then into the presidency. And he has zero constituency. He's widely despised. And yet he's running the place now. And then he's gone around. The people who effectively got him the job, the young protesters, he's gone around and he's been arresting them and rounding them up methodically. Uh, there's one young man, they physically pulled him off a plane for doing nothing. Like he just a pro, he was a protester, he was a leader. And then when the, the people on the plane said like, no, like this guy stood up for us. And then the Ranil's like investigators, they're investigating the people who dared speak out on the plane and saying they're going to look into their visa status when they come back to the country or their whatever their their documents. Like that's not cool. And so there was, yes, a brief revolutionary moment, but it was counter-revolution almost immediately. Yeah, we're actually, I would say, we've gone from the frying pan to the fire now. What's daily life like in the country? For the for a brief period during the revolutionary moment, daily life was bad for everyone. Nobody had fuel for their vehicles. There were power cuts for everyone. And obviously the poor suffered more, but everyone is suffering to some degree. So what Ranil Wickremesinghe has done as a representative of the ruling class is he's improved things for the rich while making things worse for the poor. So as an example... Now you can get 20 liters. If you have a car, like some gas guzzling Jeep or something, you can get 20 liters of fuel a week, which is actually enough to run your car. However, if you're a trishaw driver, a trishaw is a three-wheeled sort of moped with a covering. It's, a, it's, it's the, the people's vehicle, really. And it's a, used as a taxi, as a working vehicle. You only get five liters, which is not enough for them to earn a living. And uh, my father-in-law farms, and he's been finding it. He's been like, they have this allocation system, and he can't really get fuel for a tractor to produce food. So as you can see, there's been just like a real class break here where the middle classes, not the middle classes, the rich really, for them, they're seeing some sort of semblance of normalcy now. They can get in their car, they can go to a restaurant, but poor people are almost completely destroyed 
farmers are destroyed. Fishermen can't get diesel to go out and like catch fish. I was talking to someone who's working in the Middle East. They've taken his passport there. He's stuck. His family has pawned their house, their meager house. People have done that. They're pawning their jewelry. They're pawning their houses. They're falling into real destitution. People are falling into real desperation. The working class, which actually is the productive capacity of the country, they're getting systematically screwed, whereas things are being, quote unquote, stabilized for the rich. So that's what's happening in the country right now. And what about politics? Is there any kind of oppositional organization? Um, That revolution uh, earlier in the year seemed spontaneous from a distance, but uh, was there anything behind it? And what uh, what is there um, looking forward? There were different organizations and, of course, different people manipulating as well. Uh, One of the key organizations is the IUSF, the Inter-University Students Federation, um, and they've been obviously protesting for decades, actually. But these are young people. And there's also the Frontline Socialist Party. So these guys are kind of like the vanguard. And then the middle class reviles them and says they're violent or whatever. They're not. I think they're quite cool people. And there's a recent um, polling done by this guy, Ravi Rananilia. And uh, he talked about opinion polling. And so the two major parties are in the toilet right now. But the JVP, which was a revolutionary party, but now, which I would say is a sort of center-left party, they're, they, they were polling the highest. I don't know how that'll last until the next election, but they're like a more socialist party. I'd say they're more center-left. To me, they're not like revolutionary enough, but they're organized. I have a friend in there and I'm in touch with them and like they're organized and they're connected on the ground and they're more with the people than the other parties. So right now I would say they're more popular, but then the, the things the ruling classes are using the parliamentary system, the constitutional system to like prevent actual people power. So they're holding on to power as long as they can, manipulating stuff as long as they can. When what people really demand is like an election, we actually need clear the house and they're just occupying the house physically. I'm speaking with the Sri Lankan writer Indrajit Samarajiva. And what about the role of the IMF? You can talk about this in terms of ideas, but just understand that the IMF has been to Sri Lanka 16 times. And many of these loans which collapsed the country were taken out under IMF supervision. So it's important to understand what the IMF, who the IMF represents, right? The IMF represents really creditors. And they, they talk about their goal is debt sustainability. The IMF doesn't come in and like build infrastructure that you need to get out of debt. They don't forgive debt. They just keep you in the debt trap. Like we are in a Western debt trap, as many countries are. And they blame this on China, which is a joke. Like only 10 to 20% of the loans are from China. And those go for infrastructure. China actually, say the Hambantota port, which isn't that productive. But we're still able to refinance that to get cash to pay off the Western loans. So the Western debt trap is what we're in. And the IMF's role is generally keeping countries in that debt trap. They're getting a bit woke now, I guess. And like they're trying to like use different language about caring about the poor and stuff. But it's fundamentally there to defend imperial financial interests. And one thing that, again, another thing that shows you, besides the fact that they've been here 16 times already, is that the IMF is not really an international institution. It's always headed by gentlemen's agreement by a European. And the World Bank is always headed by an American, which goes to show you like what interests those those, those institutions represent. I wouldn't even call them neo-colonial institutions. I should just say they're colonial institutions. And they want to keep countries in that debt trap where we continue providing you know, cheap labor and natural resources getting undervalued, and where we keep buying overvalued uh, imports from the Western countries. And that's, that's still that fundamental colonial relationship. And it's just become sort of like decentralized now. And they try to like keep it at hand's length rather than like directly saying they're an empire. But we do still live under a white empire, which just happens to be, have its capital in America now. And all the loans that were taken out were used to cover the current account deficit, basically consumption, right? Not um, invested in any productive way. Yeah. So, I mean, the Chinese loans were actually went for infrastructure, but a lot of the infrastructure was stupid. So China doesn't come in and tell you what to do. So Mahinda Rajapaksa like, thought of like dumb Like if he had invested that money in energy and transport and useful things, then we'd be in a different place. But the Western bank loans, those come just for like whatever generally, right? And they'll give it to anyone. They're just looking for a return. And they know the IMF will come in and break your legs if they don't get their money back. So that went for essentially covering the current account deficit and really mostly for paying off old loans, which is that's how the debt trap really spiraled. At the end, we weren't investing in productive capacity at all. We were just mustering everything we could to just pay interest on loans. And, you know, that's a strange situation. David Graeber talks about that, where, like, normally if a bank goes out and loan and gives loans to someone who seems like not really trustworthy, they would lose the money. But what the IMF has created on a global level, this is, I'm kind of quoting Graeber here, is a condition where someone will come in 
and like sort of force those loans to be paid. They'll take your organs or they'll force you to sell your daughter into slavery, like metaphorically, in order to, to pay those loans. So these banks have like free reign to prey on poor countries all over the world. All they have to do is like find some corrupt leader and then the people will have to pay for that. When in fact, it's the banks who should just, some debts just shouldn't be paid. If you decided to loan someone who's so obviously corrupt in the first place, like too bad. Does that mean that like Sri Lankan children should suffer? But that's a situation that white imperialism and the IMF have created across the world. What about the role of China? Is Sri Lanka part of the Belt and Road Initiative? Yeah. I mean, I'd say like most countries in the world are part of the Belt and Road Initiative. Yeah. You said a little bit about what they've done. Uh, what the port? Anything else? Oh, so China's helped build a port. They really built a sort of like city in Hambantota, which isn't like used too much. There's a port city in Colombo, which was like uh, raised out of the ocean. This like big tower in Colombo. Um, but I mean, Sri Lanka's relationship with China going back not just like 100 years, but like for 400 years. Like, I mean, they helped build our convention center last century. And then there's still plaques from when they visited in uh, like the 1400s. Those are still assets, right? Like, it's not just like debt piling on debt, piling on debt. You can get like some value out of it. But then American ideologues want to blame China for Sri Lanka's troubles. Goebbels is misquoted as saying this, but like the, the quote is like, if if you're doing something bad, the best thing to do is just like accuse your enemy of it, which is what I think America does. And people just ignore the fact that if China's only 10 or 20% of the loans, and where's the 80% coming from? It's amazing how you can get people to ignore that, that 80%. So they just accuse China of like doing, but there's a study that came out of Africa also, how China is actually forgiving a lot of these loans. Or, I mean, they're helping people like refinance them. Like they're not the predatory agents. I'm sure certain they do like some bad things here and there, but they're not in general, like a predatory agent. And Belt and Road is like infrastructure investments. Infrastructure like is at least productive assets. You, you can choose like you know, unproductive assets and they don't interfere with you on that generally, but you can use it for productive assets. You can use it for like rail, for ports, for things which can help you get out of a debt trap. Whereas Western stuff is just like, debt trap, debt trap, then like sell off your organs back in the debt trap. So what is the IMF's advice uh, in the present crisis? My friend Daniel Alphonsus, who I don't agree with generally, like um, he's, he's, he's worked in the finance ministry before. And so the IMF's recommendations are like usually the same, um, which are like, you know, you want to reduce subsidies, you want to like fire people, um, and you want to like depreciate the currency and you end up having inflation and then should theoretically make your exports uh, more competitive and so on. What's bad about the IMF, and this guy Howard Nichols talks about this, is that like whatever your problem, they recommend the same thing generally. So whatever your disease, they recommend like deadly chemotherapy. So that's what they generally do. Something, this guy Ravi Ran and Elia talks something but different ways. They're also advocating increasing taxes, which I do support, like on the rich. And that doesn't come up uh, as much, but that's what they advocate. Um, but then the IMF... You got to understand you have that fundamental like sort of current account imbalance. And that's like not at all what the IMF is geared to do. They just do like financial jiggery pokery to like get you back on the, the, it's like, it's like if you have like a drug problem, they just give you like a shot to like get you up again and like buying drugs again, which is that they call it debt sustainability. When what the country actually needs and what the, a lot of countries in South actually need is, is debt forgiveness. Like the sovereign loans, like sorry to BlackRock, just get some free money from your own governments. These countries need it. Right now, I won't even say industrialization. Right now, Sri Lanka has a food crisis. So we need investment in like agriculture and feeding ourselves. And all the stuff that the IMF and like Western economists say we should get out of, we should get into like service economies, like providing stuff that like Western people need. And our countries collapse so much that we have to produce food for ourselves, um, something that we've been told like we shouldn't do. So what would the way out of this be in uh, your ideal view? In my ideal view? Yeah. I mean, in my ideal view, Okay, let's talk about two things. One, within the current system, I think the ideal view would be an election three months ago so we could have an actually stable government in, which would have likely been like at least a JVP aligned, like more left, for lack of a better word. I, I don't like the word left, like a more working class government that actually represented the people and not the bloody rich people and oligarchs that got us into this mess. Within the current system, I think that's that would have been, would have been ideal. Where we're headed is an like election in two years where God knows what will happen. My personal ideal situation would be like communist revolution. I think like this whole liberal democratic system is garbage. I think it's like some crap that we just copy pasted from a deeply classist society in Britain. And I don't know why we copied stuff from these people that were like the worst people in the world. I think we have to like develop our own system of government. I think we could develop essentially socialism with Sri Lankan characteristics. And that to me is the ideal way out. But I don't, I mean, I, don't, I have no idea how that happens. And I will tell you the non-ideal way out is 
in the 1950s, like people protested in similar ways around Tamil issues and around like economic sort of social issues. And the ruling class, again, suppressed them and killed them in the thousands. I mean, that went on over decades. So in response to the suppression, people who were protesting peacefully then became violent and they formed military groups. And then we had the JVP led two insurrections where they killed thousands of people and then they were and then the government killed like almost 100,000 people in response. And then Tamil people tried to get to their own separate state, killed a fair amount of people, and then got killed much more by the government in response. So, I mean, I think what you saw in Sri Lanka was an attempt of non-violent revolution, um, which was suppressed with state violence. And, I mean, history has shown where that's gone before. And your view is that the Sri Lankan crisis is the leading edge of what uh, is going to be a much broader crisis. Yeah, so Sri Lanka is 21 million people, right? So it would just be unlikely that like we have such like a self-contained thing. Like we're deeply connected to the rest of the world. And again, just think about the fact that it's like a dollar crisis. It wasn't a rupee crisis or a yuan crisis. So yeah, this is happening like all over the world. We are at a great time of historical change. I, I assume your readers or your listeners have noticed. So lots of things are changing. Capitalism itself is nearing its final contradiction, which is climate collapse which has knock-on effects all over the world. COVID-19 is just the first of like many shocks this century. And as we saw last century, violent shocks like a pandemic, like sort of world wars, like a financial crash, those shake all sorts of political meaning and structures loose. So Sri Lanka is just the canary in the capitalist coal mine. Like, yeah, we've fallen over, but you're in the coal mine with us too. That was Indrajit Samarajiva, a Sri Lankan writer. You can find his work on his blog, indi.ca. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this, Kill the Words, a newly topical song from 1989 about the fatwa against Salman Rushdie by DRI, a band that came out of Houston in the early 1980s. Like Cryptic Slaughter, whom we heard earlier, it's a crossover thrash band, as I just learned from the internet. Till next week, bye. Yeah!